I'm going to draw your attention to this screen here. There's a grid of squares of different colors. And uh, I'm going to let you choose any red square you want. And if you listen carefully, I predict that in four independent moves, I can bring you all to the same conclusion. Okay, so let's see if this works. First of all, find a red square. Any red square that you want, it's your choosing. Now I want you to move either left or right to the nearest blue square. Okay, so move left or right to the nearest blue square. Move up or down to the nearest red square. Up or down to the nearest red square. Diagonal now to the nearest blue square. And for the last step, I want you to move left or right to the nearest red square. If it didn't work, talk with me afterwards. <laughs> the point being made here is that in life, we have many different choices that we're able to make. Some have nothing to do with right or wrong. Some are just a matter of preference. I like this, I don't like this. But there is one choice in this life that we cannot get wrong, and that it only has one right answer. And that is the question is, how can we receive salvation for our souls? And the only answer is Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. That the only way that our sins can be forgiven is by the cost that Christ paid for us by dying on the cross and then rising again to show that he had victory over even death. The choice that we can't mess up is to choose Jesus Christ. And there's a time frame for us to make this choice. The Bible would say the time is today. Today is a time to consider your eternity. Today is a time to consider whether or not you are going to live in the life that Christ has to offer you, or are you going to try to live in your own strength, which I can tell you will ultimately lead to despair and death. It may have a season of momentary joy, but there is no other option that it will lead away from eternity with God. So we have a choice to make, and that choice is today. And the other thing I want to impress and to share with you is that how we feel about God, the choice that we make, doesn't impact reality at all. It impacts our life, but it doesn't change that God is God and what He said is, is true. And that we have the option that either in this life we choose to humbly bow and submit ourselves to God to receive His salvation, to live in the power of His Holy Spirit where there's life and fulfillment. We can choose to do that now. Or after we die, our knee will bow and we will acknowledge that Christ is Lord. And then we would be sent away from his presence, away from all goodness, away from all life, away from all relationship for eternity. There is only one option, and it's Jesus Christ, and every knee will eventually bow. That is what the Bible tells us. And that's what I want you to keep in mind as we look at the passage today. And I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles right now to Mark chapter 15. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to listen to a dramatic reading by, the, by a man named Max McLean. And I'll ask you to stand during that. So please stand with me as we listen to the, to the word of God together. 
chief priests, the elders, the teachers, the law, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, they led him away. They handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now the chief priest had accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? You see how many things they accuse you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So the people came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest had stood up the crowd to ask Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. A palace that is the praetorium. They called together a whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe around him. They wove a, a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. A certain man... Please be seated. I can't think of a much darker time that we can read in Scripture of what was happening to our Savior, what he endured on our behalf. This whole section, Mark is emphasizing the fact that Jesus, while completely innocent, while completely pure, completely righteous, he was rejected and he was tried by the people around him. And today we're going to look at four of those groups that rejected and tried him. And the first is that of the religious leaders. Uh, this scene, this chapter begins with the words, very early in the morning. Uh, the first time Mark uses this phrase, and he only uses it twice in his gospel, the first time he's using it in refer reference to the practice that Jesus had to get up early in the morning when it was still dark to leave the house to go to a solitary place where he would pray. We're told that in Mark 1, verse 35. This was a general habit of Christ. He took time to be intimate with his Father because he wanted to know what his Father wanted him to do, and he was going to obey and he wanted intimate fellowship with his father. That's a perfect example for us. 
And now 15 chapters later, we hear these very words very early in the morning. And what's happening? The religious leaders have reached a decision. They have bound Jesus, they led him away, and now they've handed him over to Pilate. What a stark contrast between Jesus honoring his father and religious leaders honoring themselves. A contrast of light and dark. When we do things for ourselves, it only leads to death. And this is what was on the minds of the religious leaders. How could they keep their power? How could they keep their positions? What Mark says so succinctly here signifies a plot against Jesus that has been gradually building throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. Starting in chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and then the Bible tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians wanted to kill Jesus. They started to make a plan. How can we see this man die? In chapter 11, verse 18, Jesus goes into the tabernacle, into the temple, and he sees money changers. He gets frustrated. He says, this should not happen in the place of God, and he throws over the tables, and the money spreads everywhere. And then we're told that the chief priests and the teachers of the law said, how can we kill this man? Last chapter, in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it just says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law looked for a sly way to see Jesus killed. And a few verses later, it's Judas, after he sees the, uh, Jesus being anointed with this expensive perfume that we're told that something clicked in his mind. He said, this is it. I'm going to betray this man. All throughout Mark, we knew that this was going to come, that there was going to be a time when Jesus was betrayed, and when Jesus was going to be led to death. They used the phrase, handed him over. They bound him, they led him, and they handed him over. And it's a significant phrase. It describes Jesus' fate. It implies that there's something very sinister and evil being done that is still within the sovereignty of God. And that's very confusing for us to understand the truth that while we can ignore, when we can disobey God's moral truth, we cannot get out of His sovereign will. He is always in control. And He can even use evil situations to, event, to, to do His sovereign will, as we see in what's happening here. Nothing about Christ's suffering is good, is morally right. And yet in God's sovereign will, he brings salvation to the world through that. It's the paradox of sin and the cross. After Jesus responds to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Mark mentions that the chief priests accuse him of many other things. But unlike Luke, he doesn't give us any details. We don't know from Mark what the chief priests were saying. But Mark does get us into the mind of Pilate, and he says that Pilate understood something. And he could see quite clearly that what was driving these religious leaders was envy, was self-interest. It was quite clear to him. We're not sure why, again, by Mark, why they had envy. I think popularity, knowing that Jesus was popular, would be an obvious choice all throughout the gospel. In the first chapter, it says, the news about Christ spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. In chapter 6, that Herod heard about Jesus, that his name had become well known. And later in that chapter, that Jesus just got out of a boat and people would flock to him because they were waiting for him. 
he was immediately known by the people. So I think it's safe to say that the religious leaders were envious of his popularity with the people. I'm sure from reading th through Mark that they say they're envious that he was able to perform miracles, things that they were not able to do themselves. That they were envious of his moral authority, that he taught as one who had authority. Not because of his position, but because of the words he spoke. He had moral authority. And I'm sure that they were envious because of his righteousness. There was nothing this man did wrong. Man, we're trying to kill him. We've been trying to find a way to kill this guy all throughout his life, all throughout his ministry. And there's nothing bad about him that we can say that isn't true. There's nothing bad about this man. A man by the name of Mark Hughes has written a commentary on Mark, and he makes the observation that Jesus' life is like a mirror that when people look at Jesus, they either see the reflection of what he has done in their life or they see a reflection of their own sin. He says, Jesus' life and inner righteousness earned him abiding hostility because it revealed the horrors of the religious leader's sin and the shallowness of their righteousness. The horrible state of their sin and the superficial righteousness that they had. He goes on to share a story of uh, an African chief finding a missionary station. And this chief goes to the hut of a missionary, and as she's waiting, she notices something on a tree. And she goes and she looks at it, and she's just aghast. She has never seen anything like this before. There's a little mirror on this tree. And as she looks in the mirror, she's startled. She can't believe the horrifying thing she sees, the terrifying paint, the, the menacing features on the face of the person in the tree. Oh, who is that person? And when the missionary comes out, she asks, what's with this tree? How can this face, how can this ugly face be in this tree? And the missionary says, oh, no, no, that's not, it's not in the tree. It's, it's, it's in a mirror. And the, and the African chief, she, she just wouldn't believe it until the missionary took the mirror off and put it in the chief's hand. And, and as she looks at it, she just, she just says, I, I can't believe this. I don't like this. I want this mirror, though. I want to buy this mirror from you. And the missionary at first said, no, no, uh, we're not going to sell that. But she just kept insisting, I want this mirror. So finally, the missionary agreed. They paid the price. And the chief looked at the mirror and said, I never want to see this thing make a face at me again. And they, she threw it down and she smashed it. It's exactly what the religious leaders wanted to do with Jesus. When they looked at Jesus, they saw themselves and they didn't like what they saw. They didn't like the sin. And they didn't want it just shattered. They wanted it grinded. They wanted it totally destroyed. And what happened when they tried to do that to Jesus and they see him punished, they see him flogged, they see him hanging on a cross? You know what happens? They realize that because Jesus is God and he is sovereign and there's nothing that can go against him that will stand, that they saw themselves with an even clearer reflection. We, we have sin in our lives, and the only way that that can change to righteousness is, is by accepting what Christ has done for us on the cross. When we try to do it ourselves, it doesn't work. 
And if we saw ourselves as Christ sees us without him and just our sin, we would be aghast. We would be horrified. But by God's grace, that can change. Sadly, there is nothing like the hatred of theologians and religious leaders towards Christ who are not walking humbly with God. If all you know is information about God to use to your own selfish means, you're an enemy of God. And there's no... It's one of the worst places to be. The second group of people we see that rejected and tried Jesus are the crowd. Mark tells us that during this festival, during this feast, there was a custom to release a prisoner. That they could go and say, we'd like this person released from jail, please. So in verse 8, after Pilate has already questioned Jesus, the crowd comes up to Pilate and, he a- and asks him to do what, they, what he usually did for them. And Pilate asks a reasonable question. Well, then, uh, do, you want, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And to Pilate's surprise, the crowd chooses a man named Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a, a murderer. And the ironic thing in choosing Barabbas is that his name itself means son of the father. Bar meaning son, and Abba, father. Son of the father. So the ironic thing is that the Jews chose a pseudo-son of the Father, and would rather have the true Son of God, the Son of our Father, die. They would rather have a man who was a murderer and an insurrectionist go free and have someone who was holy, pure, loving, who came to bring life, die. Here, Mark pictures Jesus as our substitute. Jesus was a substitute for Barabbas dying and he's a substitute for our needing to die for the sins that we've committed, the sins that we live in. Jesus can be the substitute for all. So we have to ask ourselves, what has changed so significantly in the opinion of the crowd? All throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowd loves him. They approach him. They want healing. They want to see his miracles. They want to hear his teachings. They want to receive his touch, his blessing. Children's flock to him. What has changed? Palm Sunday was not that long ago when people would throng around him saying, Hallelujah! Blessed be the name of the Lord! Glory to the Son of David! None of These are the same people. Well, Luke provides some insights, but Mark simply tells us in verse 11 that it was the chief priest who stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And we are not told how the chief priest did this. But what we do know is that religious leaders are meant to have a godly influence. They're meant to point people towards Christ, to point people towards life. And what these leaders did was to manipulate the people that they were leading, and to actually cause them to become murderers. Crowds tend to be fickle. And the crowds who once flocked to Jesus now want to see him flogged and crucified. When we read scripture, we read it through the lens of the cross. We know what's happened. We know the the culmination of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and was risen again so that we could have life with his Father, with him, with the Trinity forever. We read scripture through that lens. But in Mark, it is when the people cry, crucify him, that we have the first inkling of the fact that he was going to die 
by means of crucifixion. There's one other time in Mark, in chapter 8, when it's hinted at. Here we read, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We read that and we automatically think of Christ dying on the cross, but they had no clue that was going to happen. They didn't have that thought life. So it's in this portion of Scripture that we first see, that Mark's readers would first understand the death, the torture that was facing Jesus. Crucifixion was the most agonizing form of criminal execution known in antiquity. Nothing worse. But this was not an unusual occurrence for people to see. With the Roman Empire, that is how they gained control. That was their version of having peace and compliance. If you didn't obey us, you were a criminal, we're going to hang you on the cross for people to see. The crowds knew that when they said, we want him crucified, they weren't just saying, we want to see him dead, we want to see him punished. They were saying, we want to see him suffer. We want to see this man suffer and we want to see him cursed. We know this because the Jewish people would be very well familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it tells us that anyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God. But what the religious leaders and the crowd meant for evil, God used for our good. Praise the Lord that we have a God who can make anything that his sovereign will can't be thwarted. Galatians 3, 13 to 14 reads this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the Holy Spirit. In any situation, whatever darkness you face, when you give that to the Lord, He brings life, He can bring light, He brings hope. I'm so thankful that we know that God is sovereign and that God is completely good. Jesus was also rejected and tried by Pilate. Pilate ruled in Judea, from about 25 A.D. to 36 A.D. He was the fifth Roman governor of that area. Historians describe him as being cruel, as being someone who had no sensitivity to what Jewish people believed or what they practiced. And we can assume that in this situation, Pilate wanted to see the Jewish people shamed. He wanted to make this a humiliating episode for them. He asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? In all four Gospels, that's the same question that is asked. But this is the first time in Mark that that title is mentioned. And it's used repeatedly in this chapter. And this title, King of the Jews, in Mark's Gospel, is only used by his enemies. The only person, the only people who said, are you king of the Jews, or, or said it in mockery, were the enemies of Christ. But while Christ's enemies use this title in mockery, despite the seemingly desperate circumstances, Mark emphasized that Jesus died, in fact, as the King of the Jews. And he used it as a Christological title, which shows authority and greatness. That this is who he truly is. You might mock him now, 
But there will be a time where your knee will bow and the words that come out of your mouth as mockery will come out as truth, will come out with sincerity. In some translation, Jesus responds to Pilate's question by saying, yes, it is as you say. And those translations are too clear-cut. In the Greek, the wording is much more ambiguous. A better translation would be, you have said so. It promotes the question, who do you really say I am? Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? You have said so. Oh no, I didn't say that. I'm just asking you a question. The question throughout Mark is, who do you say I am? Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to determine your eternal walk with God or your eternal separation from him. Who do you say I am? In comparison with the much longer dialogue between Jesus and Pilate and John, Mark emphasizes Jesus' silence. When Jesus doesn't respond anything to Pilate's second question, it says that Pilate was amazed. He couldn't believe that Jesus wouldn't defend himself. And this carries to completion the theme of amazement that goes throughout the Gospel of Mark. At least ten different times we're told that people are amazed with the man Jesus. And this is the last time that it's mentioned, that they're amazed at his silence. Why did he not answer? Why did Jesus not say anything? Well, first of all, it would have been futile. Jesus knew that the time had come to give his life away. This was not just happening to him. He knew that this was prophecy. He was going with a purpose. He knew that the time had come for him to die. He wasn't looking to have this prolonged. He was ready to be sacrificed. Jesus was never out of control. God was always sovereign in this. John Calvin in his institute says, Jesus remained silent before Pilate so that ever after he might speak for us. That makes me think of 1 John 2 verse 1 where it says that when we sin, we have an advocate who stands before the Father that is Jesus Christ the righteous one. That because Jesus didn't defend himself, that he decided he would go to the cross, that he would die for us, he did that so that ever after he could speak on our behalf and say, Doug's sins are covered. I've taken care of them. Jesus' aim his whole life was to satisfy his father. That's why he went early in the morning to pray, to hear instructions from Abba, his daddy, and to obey him. Here we find out that Pilate did not have that same interest. He was more concerned about wanting to satisfy the crowd. And I think quite often we share a common plight as Pilate does. It's so easy to be more concerned about what the people around us are thinking or saying or doing than what God would want of us. That we put the fear of man before the fear of God. And God wants us to know that life only comes when it's surrendered to him. There's a problem we all, there's a problem we all face when we choose the approval of people over the approval of God. The last group to mention that rejected and tried Jesus were the Roman soldiers. And uh, their treatment of Jesus goes beyond just rejection to outright mocking. 
We read this in verses 16 to 20. And what Mark shares briefly with us about Christ's suffering here would be more than we could bear. If we were to actually see what took place to Jesus during the little verses that we read, we would be torn apart. We would be broken emotionally. We would just not know what to do with ourselves because we would have never seen such horror. There's no way that words could describe what took place to Jesus. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not even look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. That's quite different than the pictures we have at Easter when we see a crown of thorns on Jesus and he still looks fine, like, you know, he's hurt. There might be a little bit of blood on him. We could not handle seeing what, because of our sin, happened to Jesus. And there is more than a handful of people that are involved in this scenario. When we talk about the Roman soldiers, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not sure, is this just a, a few people? It says the whole battalion. And I don't know exactly how many people were there, but a whole battalion could be up to 600 people. The point here is there is a large group of soldiers with power, and they were beating our Savior. They spit at him, they struck him, they mocked him. These are the words that we read in 18 and 19. And then they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. These are things that we don't like to think about often, but man, do we need to be able to remember what Christ endured for us. Every time we have the Lord's Supper and we celebrate taking the bread, that we remember that this was not something simple for God to endure. He paid a huge price for us. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and Mark had a few choices in the Greek language to to use for the word thorn. One word could have been diadema, and that would mean a crown of a king, and that would be the word that would make most sense here. That would be the most natural fit. But he actually used the word stephanos, which means a victor's crown, a symbol of triumph. And I think the subtle point that Mark was making is that while the soldiers mocked and ridiculed Jesus, he was actually being victorious. He was actually doing exactly what his father said he should do. And he surrendered and he obeyed. Significantly, this crown was made of thorns, and as we read in Genesis 3, thorns are a symbol of the earth being cursed due to our sin. This is what it reads in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 18. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. While the soldiers would have no idea of this symbolism, for us as we read the Gospel of Mark, and we know that that crown was made of thorns, it reminds us that Christ was taking the complete blunt of the curse for us. Beyond these acts of mockery, there was intense physical and verbal abuse as we just read in verses 18 and 19. Again and again they struck him, they hid him. These words are in the imperfect tense and that means they're repeatedly happening. 
It wasn't just one hit, one spit. This was happening over and over again. What we need to remember here is that Christ's suffering for us was not just hideous. It was vicarious. We should be there. He took what we deserve. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You know, at least once a year, we have a somber day that we reflect on this portion of Jesus' life. We call it Good Friday. And we reflect on what took place and the persecution, the punishment, the ridicule, the rejection that Christ faced on our behalf. What I want to encourage you with today is that Jesus is not looking for the sympathy of our hearts. He is looking for our faith. He is not looking for compassion towards him. He is looking for love that is signified by obedient surrender to him. When we see these things, it should tug our heart. It should make us sorrowful, but what happened to Christ? But if that's where it stays, it has no lasting value. Christ says, I want you to trust in me. I want you to see that your sins are cared for. I want you to surrender to me, not because I'm mean and vindictive and I need followers, but because the exact opposite is true. I have life. I have goodness. I have everything you've ever wanted in life that is meaningful and everlasting. I am the source of those things, and I desire to give it to you if you give your life to me. I'm not saying here that our feelings aren't important. What I'm saying and what Scripture says is that our feelings are not the basis of our salvation. Our salvation comes from making a choice to surrender to Christ, to accept His suffering and dying for our sins, to accept that, to confess our sins, and then to live in the strength of His Holy Spirit. In conclusion, I... I just want to take a a little bit of time to talk about, well, why did Mark in his gospel share this as he did? Knowing Jesus' trials, I believe Mark wrote to encourage the church and to prepare them for similar rejections and persecutions that they were about to experience or that they were actually experiencing right then due to their allegiance to Christ. I believe we can know this is Mark's motive in writing because in Mark 13, Jesus told his disciples, you must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Christ knows that tribulation scares us, especially if it's tribulations that's caused because we're standing for him. And he knows that when we're scared, we tend to scatter just like sheep. So Mark desires to point to his readers, Mark's desire is to point his readers towards the wisdom and strength that they would need to endure during these times of persecution. Assuming that the Apostle Peter is Mark's source for his gospel, that all this first-hand information comes from Peter, I think we can learn something as we look to a book, uh, a letter that Peter wrote and hear what he has to say. 
This is in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Remember, this was written by Peter, the man who said he'd never leave Jesus' side and deserted him and denied he ever knew him. In Mark's gospel, we never see Peter restored. You, if you read Mark's gospel, we're left with a cliffhanger. We don't know what happens to Peter. We don't know if he ever comes back to Jesus. Now we read in the letter that he says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That Peter was brought back into the fold and was given the privilege to lead others. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And as they come up, I just want to leave you with a thought and two questions. As a Christ follower, as Christians, I believe that Mark would want you to know that Jesus was rejected and, he was re and tried for you, that he bore your sins and he died for you. So then the question is, how are we intentionally dying to our sins and living in righteousness? And the other question is, how are we preparing ourselves for future trials that might come our way, that will come our way, because we follow Christ? We need to be prepared for whatever the future holds. We need to be prepared. We're in those moments when we're in a crowd that's going an opposite way than Christ, that we stand and in love speak truth. That is what Christ wants of us. So please think of these things as we end with a few songs.